Dear Father, you are good and mighty and marvelous and true. And Lord, um, what a wonderful truth that uh, you are able to keep us from stumbling and to make us stand blameless before you with great joy. Father, we thank you that uh, we can see this uh, redemptive purpose of yours worked out in history. And Father, that uh, we can see it even in the work that the Chronicler has done recording uh, the history of your people. I pray now that as we continue our study, you'd be glorified to uh, give us wisdom and understanding, and Father, that uh, your word um, would come through, and Lord, that we would understand it better and submit to it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay, so uh, we're going to start actually by going back to something I mentioned uh, at the end last week. Uh, and that is uh, the topic of whether the Davidic covenant is unconditional or not. Um, like I mentioned then, Andy Newton, uh, when he taught, um, I think it was Second Samuel, uh, went pretty in depth on this topic, uh, and that was two years ago. <coughs> um, I don't think I put on the uh, outline here, but uh, the teaching is from March 24 of 2013. It's available online uh, and on the app. Uh, and like I said, I'm not going to go real deep on this because Andy did, but I'm going to give a, a bit of a summary of what he taught uh, because uh, something he didn't do, um, I'd like to do, and more from sort of a Chronicles perspective, um, I want to draw a lesson from that topic that uh, wasn't part of Andy's teaching, and that is how the Davidic covenant and the way it has worked out in history can be a helpful analogy to the way we experience the promises of salvation. And uh, this, this actually goes really well with what Brent is preaching this morning from Jude 24 and 25. <clears throat> We're going to see a tension between God's work and, uh, and our work, our responsibility. Uh, so if you would, open your Bibles to 1 Chronicles 17. <clears throat> We're going to look at the text a little bit, starting with verse 10. And uh, this is God speaking to David through Nathan. He says, I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are fulfilled that you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up one of your descendants after you who will be one of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son, and I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it from him who is before you. But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. So, let's ask, is the Davidic covenant conditional or unconditional? Well, if you were to answer just based on this text, you might be more likely to say it's unconditional. But remember, Chronicles has more of a messianic emphasis than the other historical books. While Chronicles, in this passage in particular, seem more concerned with David's ultimate son, Jesus, those other books, First and Second Kings and First and Second Samuels, are often more concerned with David's sons, starting with Solomon, who would reign in the generations immediately following him. <clears throat> Listen to what David says to Solomon in First Kings 2, starting with verse 1. As David's time to draw near, he charged Solomon his son, saying, I am going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, his testimonies, according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn, so that the Lord may carry out his promise which he spoke concerning me, saying, 
If your sons, if your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Uh, so we see David understands a condition here. We see that if in verse 4. And uh, God actually says the same thing to Solomon in 1 Kings 6. And uh, going back all the way to Deuteronomy, there's actually a condition on uh, uh, continuation of the throne and the kingship for Israel. Uh, that's in uh, Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20, noted there on the outline. Um, so we see very clearly here in 1 Kings 2, in verse 4, that David tells Solomon there is a condition. If your sons do these things, you shall not lack a man on the throne. Now we just read before that in the account in, in 1 Chronicles 17, and this condition wasn't included there. And it actually isn't in Samuel's account in 2 Samuel 7 either, although that account does include one detail that's missing from Chronicles that hints in this direction. And this verse, uh, verse 14 from 2 Samuel 7 corresponds uh, with verse 13 in 1 Chronicles 17 with, with uh, a slight exception. Uh, Samuel writes, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. While, like I said, the chronicler's account of the promises of the Davidic covenant could be interpreted as speaking only of Jesus as David's son, in Samuel's account, Samuel is obviously talking, at least in part, about David's immediate son, Solomon, and his nearer descendants. And one of the ways we can know this is from what I just read there, because Jesus never committed iniquity. And uh, what, uh, what's being said there in 2 Samuel 7 is that the son of David uh, that's being talked about in the covenant uh, will commit iniquity. So we see from the chronicler's emphasis the rock-solid truth that the covenant is unconditional. No matter what else happens, one of David's sons will be called God's son. God will settle him in his house and in his kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. This promise is and will be fulfilled in Christ absolutely without fail. We also see, and this more from the emphasis in Samuel and Kings, and David sees this too, that the covenant is conditional at least in terms of whether or not David's biological seed would be on the throne at any given point in time, starting with Solomon. We can see hints here that David's sons would be more or less faithful and that God would deal with them on a case-by-case -case basis in terms of whether they would remain on the throne. Now here I want to give sort of a scenario to hopefully help draw this out in terms of seeing a parallel to the way we experience God's redemptive purposes. Imagine that David could have seen what happened with his descendant, King Ahaz, and this is skipping a little uh, ahead a little from 2 Chronicles 28. Ahaz was 26 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do right in the sight of the Lord, as David his father had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He also made molten images for the Baals. Moreover, he burned incense in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and burned his sons in the fire. So he's practicing child sacrifice, this son of David according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel. Or, imagine David could have been, seen the ups and downs of his royal descendants with kings like Asa and Hezekiah, righteous kings, but then others like Manasseh, who could be described as evil incarnate, and actually then, in, in his same lifetime, Manasseh repents. Um, and then later, uh, what happened with David's wicked descendants, Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin, when they became servants and vassals to foreign kings, and then when Zedekiah, who, who also is David's descendant, and the last king of Judah, was finally removed from the throne, 
And then there's no, been no son of David on the throne of Israel ever since. So imagine that David could have seen all of this, and remember, the chronicler is writing after all of these ups and downs. We might imagine that David would be seriously frustrated by all of this, maybe even wondering whether God's promises to him were true. But no, I think from what we see David understood, we can assume his perspective would be like the chronicler's. He would know that even though his various sons have been more or less faithful, God has been perfectly faithful. The promised son of the Davidic covenant is still the promised son of the covenant. Paul summarizes this perfectly in Romans 3 when he writes, What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. And this should help make seemingly difficult texts like Hebrews 6 a little less difficult. And I'm thinking particularly of the passages that some have misunderstood as teaching that it's possible to lose true salvation. Where uh, the Hebrews writer says, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now as we look at these kings, the descendants of David by the flesh, and see how they were recipients of so much, they were the rightful heirs of the covenants and the law, it could be hard to reconcile the highs and lows, and like I said, sometimes even the same, in the same king. But whatever happens, whether a seemingly good king turns evil, or an evil king repents, or a good king has an evil son, or an evil king has a righteous son, no matter what happens, it is not a mystery to God. He has ordained it, and he is working it out according to his perfect will. And his perfect will is the ultimate and unconditional fulfillment of his covenant with David in the person of Jesus Christ, who is David's son according to the flesh. And this is very much like the grounds of our objective assurance. Whether seemingly, the seemingly good fall or the evil repent, whether your parents persevere in the faith or your children fall away or vice versa, it will always be unshakably true that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who actually are in Christ Jesus, and that all things work together for the good of those who actually do love God and are actually called according to his purpose, and that neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So these salvation promises that we receive in, in so many New Testament texts are kind of a, a parallel to the chronicler's view of the Davidic covenant, that this unshakable truth, that all of salvation, all of redemption, redemptive history will be infallibly accomplished in this Davidic son, according to the flesh, and that is Jesus Christ. Now that's objective assurance, objective assurance. That's the understanding of the reality that God's redemptive purposes will infallibly succeed, that all of the elect will be saved. Subjective assurance, whether any particular individual is a part of that positive redemptive purpose, is more a matter of working it out, a matter of perseverance, a matter like Brent is preaching this morning of, of keeping yourself in the love of God. It is, as the term suggests, more subjective. Even with a figure like Solomon, as, as we'll see um, a little bit, the chronicler spares us some of the details, but uh, uh, like a character like Solomon, it's debated whether or not he actually knew the Lord when he first assumed the throne because of the blatant lawlessness of so much of his life that followed. 
But as we'll see, the chronicler leaves out much of the detail of the faithlessness of, of the David, Davidic kings that we see in the other historical books. And this has led some to assert that the chronicler is a revisionist historian, that he wants to paint an artificially positive portrait of Israel's history. But that's the wrong view. Instead of emphasizing the ups and downs of human kings, he is saying, in effect, let God be true, though every man be found a liar. He knows that we're reading or, or that his audience has read uh, the accounts in First and Second Kings and First and Second Samuels. You know, he knows that, that uh, those are there. He's not trying to cover them up. He's trying to give us the bigger picture, the, the, the picture that includes more messianic hope. Um, and that's, that's his thrust. And by the way, where, where Paul says that in Romans 3, let God be true, though every man be found a liar. And this is a good example of, of how much it can help to see uh, the inter, in, intertextuality of a text. If you look at the, um, the, the words that immediately follow that, where Paul writes, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged, that's a direct quote from Psalm 51, where David's repenting in the uh, situation with Bathsheba and Uriah. So, so the very example Paul uses of, of God being true, though every man is a liar, that, that the unfaithfulness of some does not indicate God's unfaithfulness is an example that points to the Davidic king, David himself, uh, as someone who wasn't always perfectly faithful. And even in light of that, even in light of David's egregious sin in that case, God is still faithful and perfectly working out his redemptive purposes uh, through the man he puts on the throne. Now, along with the rock-solid certainty of the covenant promises, as we've seen already repeatedly, the chronicler is concerned with the people's faithfulness as well. But as to the sometimes obsessive questions about whether this king or that was saved or why God allowed him to reign or repent or fall away or be a blessing because he had done this or that, the best answer that I could think would sum up the chronicler's response to those kinds of questions comes from Deuteronomy 29. Verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. And, and like we've seen repeatedly, the chronicler is serious about our worship and everything that's entailed in our worship, which is our daily lives, is, is done, is executed according to the exact specifications of his law. So hopefully as we read through the coming accounts of David's descendants, and even the next time you read through them in the various historical books, you'll see the constant reminders of God's faithfulness, whether through redemption or through judgment. And, and the occasional question mark or mystery will simply remind you that for you, and this is true in your life too, like I said, whether you see people that you thought were solid falling into sin or people that you thought could never repent, repenting, um, as you see these things that, that may be mysterious or confusing to you, let them simply remind you that, that for you, as it was for each Davidic king, the things that are revealed have been given so that you may do them. As we heard this morning, keep yourself in the love of God. He is able to keep you. you know, the, the ultimate um, truth that all the elect will persevere is there to comfort you and give you assurance. And at the same time, we have motivation to submit to God's law and to keep ourselves his grace to us is to allow us, to enable us, to give us everything we need to keep ourselves in the love of God. Uh, with that, let's move on to chapter 18. Uh, verse 1. Now after this, it came about that David 
defeated the Philistines and subdued them and took Gath and its towns from the hand of the Philistines. Remember from last week, chapter 17, God giving the, the covenant promises through Nathan and David responding. Uh, that, that exchange is really the center of Chronicles. Everything that precedes it anticipates it and everything that follows flows from it. Um, and the beginning here of chapter 18 doesn't waste any time in that respect. God has promised uh, that even as he has cut off all David's enemies before him, he will continue to allow David to secure the land, appointing a place for his people Israel, planting them so that they may dwell in their own place and not be moved again. His promise to subdue all David's enemies um, is, is clear, and, and we see it again here in verse 1, where uh, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. So, so that's a, sort of a key to understanding what the chronicler is trying to do. He's trying to show the immediate way in which God is starting to fulfill his covenant promises. We also continue to see evidence that the blessings of David's reign are not limited to Israel. Other nations come, which is to lead ultimately to the blessing of the nations through the knowledge of the God of Israel. And we're going to see more of these themes as we continue. Verse 2, he defeated Moab, and the Moabites became servants to David, bringing tribute. Now remember, this is part of what happened in chapter 14. Kings from other countries paying tribute to David, showing him that God has not remained angry with him after the incident of Uzzah and the ark. Chapter 14, verse 4 reads, David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that his kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of his people Israel. The fact that foreign tribute recurs here indicates that God is again immediately fulfilling his covenant promise to make for David a name like the name of the great ones of the earth. Verse 3, David also defeated Hadadezer, king of Zobah, as far as Hamath, and he went to establish his rule to the Euphrates River. And this is the second reference here to the land. First he takes the towns of the Philistines. So, so we see David expanding in the land, also part of the covenant promise. David took from him a thousand chariots and seven thousand horsemen and twenty thousand foot soldiers, and David hamstrung all the chariot, chariot horses, but reserved enough of them for a hundred chariots. When the, when the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed twenty-two thousand men of the Arameans. So significant military conquests here. Then David put garrisons among the Arameans of, of Damascus, and the Arameans became servants to David, bringing tribute. So that theme recurring again. And the Lord helped David wherever he went. And if you remember, that's another theme we've been seeing is that David is dependent on the Lord's help and that God is providing that help along the way. David took the shields of gold which were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. Also from Tibhath and from Kun, cities of Hadadezer, David took a very large amount of bronze. And this is unique to the chronicler. A lot of this comes from Samuel, but this is unique. With which Solomon made the bronze sea and the pillars and the bronze utensils. And we see that again in uh, verse 11. King David also dedicated these to the Lord. Um, the chronicler is intent on showing that not only is, is David expanding his influence and um, not only is he gaining the land, he's also getting provision for the temple. Although he's not going to be allowed to build the temple Pretty much all the supply coming for the temple comes from David's military conquests. Uh, there are also hints here, by the way, of the theme of the nations and back to the Melchizedekian priesthood. Uh, the Genesis 14 account of Abraham and Melchizedek includes both um, 
that of the nations uh, at war, as well as tribute uh, or tithes on the spoils being brought to Jerusalem's priest king, who in that context was Melchizedek. It seems that whether it comes through tribute or war spoils, God intends for the wealth of the nations to come in support of the priestly work that is to be done in Jerusalem. Uh, so that continues, and we're going to kind of skip over the next few verses there. Um, 14 to 17 uh, sort of gives us a picture of David's administration, and uh, it's somewhat reminiscent of Solomon's later and greater administration. Uh, and the chronicler's likely purpose in including that is to, to show to his post-exilic readers the necessity of laying early groundwork in a way that can be built upon by succeeding generations. The, the groundwork that David's laying by establishing this administration is going to enable Solomon later to, to establish a greater administration uh, through which he's going to build the temple. And again, like I've mentioned previously, the exiles are coming back uh, to a pretty, pretty humble circumstances. So they have a lot of work in front of them, and this is probably an encouragement from David to, to begin the work of laying the groundwork. Uh, on to chapter 19. Now, uh, this, this story at the beginning of chapter 19 might seem somewhat bizarre to us. The story of the Ammonites insulting David by mistreating his messengers. Uh, while the chronicler's purpose in spending so many words here is not immediately clear, I think we'll see if we look a little deeper that the chronicler wants to show us two things. First, that God will affect his purposes, and two, that the mindfulness of and uh, obedience to God's word is rewarded. Uh, verse 1 in chapter 19. Now it came about after this that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, died, and his son became king in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, because his father showed kindness to me. So David sent messengers to console him concerning his father. And we see David's sincere here. I mean, everything in the text would indicate David's sincerity. David's servants came into the land of the sons of Ammon to Hanan to console him. Now, whether we're considering this or not, the Ammonites are in the promised land, and God has instructed the Israelites to utterly destroy the people and the cities that God has given them. So we should be asking the question, and his original audience may have been asking the question unless they knew the answer, uh, why is it that David is showing kindness to the man? I mean, I know, or we know, the reader knows, uh, that he, he, his father was kind to David, but there's, there's got to be some kind of background or context to the reason they would be friendly on friendly terms with someone like this in the promised land. Uh, and the answer actually comes from God's word, God's instructions concerning the Ammonites. Um, let's see here. <clears throat> uh, the Ammonites were not indigenous to the promised land, and because of that, we're not included in the instructions to annihilate totally the peoples in the promised land. And that's in Deuteronomy 20, verse 17. Further to that, God specifically mentions the Ammonites in Deuteronomy 2.19, where uh, Moses writes, When you come opposite the sons of Ammon, do not harass them nor provoke them, for I will not give you any of the land of the sons of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot as a possession. So there's specific instruction concerning the Ammonites, that, uh, that the Israelites are not to provoke them or harass them. So it's very well possible that David's being on friendly terms with them is a result of his knowing the scripture. 
the Israelites run into this again in Joshua's day. Uh, in Joshua 13.25, we see that the people of Gad were only given half of the land of Ammon, but had to shop store, stop short of uh, Rabbah. So David wisely, because apparently of his knowledge of God's word, wisely remained on good, good terms with the Ammonites. But God, obviously, from what happens, wanted Israel to defeat them and take their land, to subdue them in the land. Since David was apparently set on maintaining the peaceful relationship with the Ammonites that God had commanded, God instead caused the Ammonites to become forcefully opposed to Israel. And he did it through a misunderstanding, as we see starting in verse 3. But the princes of the sons of Ammon said to Hanun, Do you think that David is honoring your father and that he has sent comforters to you? Have not his servants come to you to search and to overthrow and to spy out the land? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved them and cut off their garments in the middle as far as their hips and sent them away. And this is a, I mean, it sounds kind of silly, but it's a major insult. Verse 5, then certain persons went and told David about the men, and he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly humiliated. And the king said, stay at Jericho until your beards grow, and then return. When the sons of Ammon saw that they had made themselves an, uh, odious to David, Hanun and the sons of Ammon sent a thousand talents of silver to hire for themselves chariots and horsemen from Mesopotamia, from Arab, Aram, Maka, and from Zobah. They, they doubled down, and that's kind of what the, the chronicle, I think, is trying to emphasize by including these details. This is a significant threat to David, all of a sudden creeping up from, from these people with whom he was on friendly terms because God's word had instructed him to be on friendly terms with them. <clears throat> Verse 7, so they hired for themselves 32,000 chariots, and the king of Makkah and his people who came and camped before Medaba, and the sons of Ammon gathered together from their cities and came to battle. And it's clear that they're not intent on merely defending themselves, but they clearly want to defeat David. It leaves him with no choice but to defeat them. When David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army, the mighty men. And uh, I think we're going to kind of gloss over a little bit and uh, skip to verse 16. When the Arameans saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they sent messengers and brought out the Arameans who were beyond the river. So they're, they're very intent on... on gaining ground against David. But ultimately, verse 18, the Arameans fled before Israel, and David killed of the Arameans 7,000 charioteers and 40,000 foot soldiers and put to death Shopak, the commander of the army. Now this other people that they had hired, in verse 19, made peace with David and served him. So God's worked out all of these circumstances in a way that seemed pretty unlikely. He wanted the Ammonites to be subdued in the land, had already given instruction in his word that that not be done through the aggression of the Israelites. And with David being faithful to that, God makes it so that the Ammonites become aggressive and uh, bring more nations, even the one that they went out to engage uh, to help them uh, come into submission to David and his kingdom. Now, as we've noted since the first week of this study, the chronicler's overarching concern is worship. He's constantly reminding his readers that God's plans need to be executed in God's way by the people God has appointed. And if worship extends to our jobs even, and in David's case to a holy war commanded by God, it's important that everything God's people do be undertaken in submission to God's word to the very last detail. If the chronicler is communicating anything to his readers here, it's that men don't need to bend the rules in order for God's aims to be accomplished. You know, it would have been a good thing 
to consolidate David's hold on the promised land. And this was ultimately what God wanted. And it might have seemed that the logical way to do that would be to, you know, go against this old instruction not to go after the Ammonites. But that wasn't necessary. And again, this is sort of a contrast with Saul. Saul had in mind often good things like making a sacrifice to the Lord. And he went about accomplishing that thing that might have been good by, at the very least, bending, and typically with Saul, directly violating the commands God had given. Now, finally, just to note briefly, God is continuing quickly to fulfill his, his covenant with David, using all of these things to establish his kingdom and make a great name for David. Uh, chapter 20. Here we're going to see developing one of the more significant themes of the closing uh, chapters of Chronicles. And that is David as the new Moses, but, but not in an entirely positive sense. Um, while we've noticed earlier hints of continuity between the, the covenant at Sinai and the covenant with David, and between Moses, who speaks with God face to face, and David, the man after God's own heart, the main thrust of this parallel is that like Moses, David, too, is disqualified from bringing the Israelites into their promised rest. Now, as we, as we see this, uh, it could seem to be sort of a down note. You know, the chronicler is mostly positive. Um, but consider, again, the messianic emphasis that the chronicler has. If Moses is not qualified to bring the people into rest, and David is not qualified to bring the people into rest... We must be waiting on the new Moses and the new David, who is the only one who could ever bring God's people into their true rest. Let this point us to the insufficiency of every man, including David, including Moses, including ourselves, and to the awesome and total sufficiency of Christ. Now, the hints at this theme actually began in chapter 19, uh, where verse 13, Joab echoes uh, God's and Moses' exhortation to Joshua before his entrance into the promised land when he says, be strong and let, our, let us show ourselves courageous. And they continue here, these, these uh, hints and allusions continue here in chapter 20 as David triumphs in the south over the Philistines, the Edomites, and the Amalekites, to the east over the Moabites and the Ammonites, and to the north over the Arameans, show David is coming nearer than any other Israelite leader to completing the task of conquering the land as first given to Moses and Joshua. So there's also a positive sense in which that parallel is being made here. Now, one reason it's important that this theme is developing is that this portion of the text covers the same time period as David's grievous sin in the matter of Bathsheba and Uriah. If you recall, I mentioned earlier that there are those who accuse the chronicler of glossing over sin in order to paint a rosy picture. But with this theme of David as uh, the new Moses in sort of a negative sense, that, that he's not qualified to lead the people into rest, uh, the chronicler is again assuming his reader's familiarity with David's egregious sin, and instead of retelling it, he's offering his commentary. But there are other themes present here in chapter 20 also, particularly God's exaltation of David and the acquiring, the continuing acquiring of goods for the future temple. Uh, and we see that in verses 1 and 2. Uh, at the time when kings go out to battle, Joab led the army and ravaged the land of the son of Ammon, sons of Ammon and came and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. And those are some of the same words, by the way, that introduced the account of, of David's unfaithfulness uh, with Bathsheba. Verse 2, David took the crown of their king from his head and he found it to weigh a talent of gold 
and there was a precious stone in it, and it was placed on David's head. Now, this is the, the crown of the king of Ammon, and the king of Ammon is the one who had insulted David by, by doing the, the insulting things to his messengers. So God has arranged it here so that David gets direct retribution, doing something that's, that's uh, insulting to that king and continuing to lift up David's name as great among the nations. Verse 3, he brought out the people who were in it and cut them with saws and with sharp instruments and with axes. And thus David did to all the cities of the sons of Ammon. And then David and the people returned to Jerusalem. Now it came about after this that war broke out with the Philistines. And so we see a couple times here, they're, they're getting um, goods for the temple. And specifically, the Philistines were mentioned in chapter 18 as people whose possessions were used, eventually dedicated to the Lord in the building of the temple. Uh, skipping to verse 6, um, talking about uh, the war with the Philistines. And there was war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had 24 fingers and toes, six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. And he also was descended from the, from the giants, um, emphasizing the significant of, significance of the threat here. When he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimeah, David's brother, killed him. And you may notice a uh, similarity between this and the account of David and Goliath, um, setting it up as one of the giants and one of uh, David's family um, killing him. And, and it's the next generation. And the significance of that is likely this is towards uh, the later part of David's life. And in Samuel's account, it's after this that David's men say, we don't want you going out to war anymore. You're too old. Um, the chronicler, again, isn't ignoring the fact of David's age, but he's probably using this uh, to point out that although David is aging, uh, David's family is still the, the vessel through which God is going to defeat his enemies. He's going to continue to be um, kind and merciful to David's family in his old age is probably the point there. Uh, and with that, uh, we close chapter 20. Uh, chapter 21 is where it really gets interesting. At least I think so. Uh, not only do we find more evidence of the connections between David's disqualification and that of Moses, we also see numerous allusions to other events across the Testaments. David is a figure of Adam, Abraham, and Moses, and ultimately as yet another insufficient Messiah type. Uh, with the establishing of a place for the temple, we also see that the chronicler keeps, keeps moving with the quick fulfillment of God's covenant promises from chapter 17. Uh, but verse 1 uh, is where we, we start to see the chronicler's departure from his source material. It reads, Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. And this is an interesting detail that's unique to the chronicle's account. Uh, Samuel's account of the same event reads, Now again the anger of the Lord burned against Samuel, and it incited David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the question has to be asked, who incited David? Who incited Israel? And the answer is that Satan did, and God did. Both are true. It seems this is maybe a theme for the morning, that we have this tension in, in competing or seemingly competing realities. Now, there are other places where we see this, this happen. Uh, God sends um, Satan in the account of Job to, to test Job. 
And uh, God sends uh, a lying spirit in the account of uh, Micaiah uh, to, to put a lie in the mouths of the other, uh, the false prophets there. So this is, is not entirely unique in all of scripture, but it is unique in the, in the chronicler's telling of this account. Uh, but the purpose it serves is to line David up with the biblical thread of testing by Satan of those who are chosen by God. Uh, at this moment, when the land could be said to be set in a it could be said to be in a state of Sabbath rest, with God having subdued Israel's enemies on every side in the preceding chapters, kind of like the Sabbath rest of the first week of creation. God puts Israel to the test by way of Satan, just as with Adam, the original firstborn. And because of that, I think it's impossible to miss how this points forward to the desert testing of the firstborn of all creation, the ultimate Adam, the ultimate Davidic king, Christ himself. Back to the narrative, verse 2. So David said to Joab and to the princes of the people, Go, number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan, and bring me word that I may know their number. Joab said, and he, he reacts, um, maybe surprisingly, uh, very strongly, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are, but my Lord the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why does my Lord seek this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt to Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. Joab gave the number of the census of all the people to David, and all Israel were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and Judah was 470,000 men who drew the sword. But he did not number Levi and Benjamin among them, for the, Lord, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. God was displeased with this thing, so he struck Israel. Now we see, we see in this account that David receives a warning in verse 3, and the warning actually finds its basis in God's word. There are two possible ways to understand why Joab says what he says and why he's so disgusted by David's suggestion of a census. And the right answer might be that both of these ways of understanding this are, are in view. First, Exodus 30, verses 11 to 16, lays out the proper procedures for a census and includes a deadly penalty, a plague, which the Hebrew word is negep, like the one visited upon the people here. The same word is used later in verses 17 and 22 to describe what happens. Very much like when he first attempted to move the ark, David does not follow the letter of this law, and again, the result is that innocent people pay with their blood. The other way of understanding Joab's reasons for opposing David indicates an even deeper violation of the spirit of Israel's covenant. And we gather this from Joab's choice of words, where he says, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are, which is a likely reference to God's covenant promise to multiply Abraham's descendants so greatly that they could not be numbered. And this is probably also confirmed by the reference to David's census in uh, chapter 27, verses 23 and 24. Uh, which could be read, wrath came upon Israel because the Lord had promised to make Israel as many as the stars of heaven. So God has promised to make the Israelites uncountable, and instead of trusting that covenant promise, David wants to have human knowledge, very much like Adam wanted to have human knowledge uh, in the temptation in the garden. But however we take it, and whether it's one of those two or a combination of the two, Joab's warning comes from God's word. 
And this is significant in the text for that reason. David's word is said to have prevailed over Joab's word, and Joab's word finds its basis in God's word. And what follows is what always follows in such cases. Whether immediately or eventually, God is not mocked. And what the text says is that God was displeased with this thing, so he struck Israel. And then just as he did in the incident with Uzzah, David repents. Verse 8. David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing, but now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. The Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and speak to David, saying, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, which I will do to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Take for yourself either three years of famine or three months to be swept away before your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, even pestilence in the land, and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now, therefore, consider what answer I shall return to him who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. <clears throat> now, the significance here uh, especially of what we hear David saying in verse 13, is the thoroughness of David's repentance. <clears throat> His sin in this matter was like Adam's, one of seeking humanly to know something which God intended to leave unknown to him. And instead of trusting God's word, which had repeatedly proven trustworthy for David, David's own word had prevailed. Now, instead of choosing the more quantifiable options of famine or war, David trusts God casting himself on the Lord's mercy. So one of the ways in which we can see all things working together for David's good, um, even in this circumstance, we see how David was not trusting in a particular way and how God's testing him made him repent in a way that he's showing the opposite. Now he's trusting God instead of trusting in what his knowledge is of his ability to withstand famine or war. Verse 14 so the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel. 70,000 men of Israel fell. And that's a huge number. It dwarfs most of the numbers found in the text that we've read already concerning David's military defeats. And remember, these are innocent people, God's people, and they're victims of a king who is going against God's word. And here's a, an, uh, um, an implication that this is not a revisionist history. It may very well be that the chronicler sees this as a bigger deal, a far bigger deal than the incident uh, with Bathsheba and, and Uriah. There, there, there will be another apparent reference to that later. I don't think we'll get to it today. But uh, the chronicler is not trying to paint David in, ex in an exclusively positive light. In all likelihood, this is, this is the larger part of what disqualifies David from uh, leading the people into rest. Now, I mentioned that this event can be seen as the covenant testing of David. One clue that we have that David sees the event this way comes later when David says, with apparent reference to the census in, in 1 Chronicles 29, I know, O oh my God, that you try, or the word could be test, the heart and delight in uprightness. The word translated try there is a synonym of the biblical term used elsewhere to describe the testing of God's covenant family including when God tested Abraham in asking for the sacrifice of his only son, Isaac. And next we find more evidence of this as parallels with that event 
pile up in the succeeding verses. Verse 15, And God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and was sorry over the calamity and said to the destroying angel, It is enough. Now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Then David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven with his sword drawn in his hand, stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, covered with sackcloth, fell on their faces. Now later, the chronicler's typological understanding is explained more fully as he identifies the location of Ornan's threshing floor as Mount Moriah, and that comes in 2 Chronicles 3. Now Mount Moriah is the very place where Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. That's from Genesis 22. Just as in that account, God commands the would-be killer to stay his hand and lower the blade in place of both the firstborn people of Israel and Abraham's firstborn Isaac. Burnt offerings are made instead, and we see that coming up in verse 26. Now we can also see here further development of the Mosaic connections. In verse 12, the angel of the Lord destroying is the same expression used to describe the angel of death sent to destroy the Egyptians firstborn in the Exodus. Additionally, the same language with which we found a connection in the testing of Abraham is used in Exodus 15 to describe how the Lord tested his people at the waters of Meribah. We learn later that it was a result of his failure, Moses' failure in this test, that Moses was not allowed to lead the people into the promised land. So parallels in all likelihood coming up in terms of David's disqualification and Moses' disqualification. We also see from verses 15 and 16 that the chronicler identifies the future location of the temple as the center of the cosmos, or as the intersection of heaven and earth. The angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, verse 15, a location he next describes as being between earth and heaven. Now this is set to become the place where the high priest would stand between God and his people. And so it is fitting that David prays an intercessory prayer here, once again, very much like Moses' repeated intercessory prayers for the Lord to spare Israel. Verse 17, David said to God, Is it not I who commanded to count the people? Indeed, I am the one who has sinned and done very wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? O Lord my God, please let your hand be against me and my father's household, but not against your people that they should be plagued. Then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David, that David should go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at the word of Gad, so letter, you know, submission to the letter of God's word here, which he spoke in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan turned back and saw the angel, and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. And Ornan was threshing wheat. As David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and prostrated himself before David with his face to the ground. Then David said to Ornan, Give me the site of this threshing floor, that I may build an altar to the Lord for the full price you shall give it to me, that the plague may be restrained from the people. Ornan said to David, Take it for yourself, and let my lord the king do what is good in his sight. See, I will give the oxen for burnt offerings, and the threshing sledges for wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I will give it all. But David said to Ornan, No, but I will surely buy it for the full price, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord, or a burnt offering which costs me nothing. Now, the only other place that this phrase, full price, is used in Scripture 
is when David wants to purchase the cave, I'm sorry, not David, but uh, Abraham wants to purchase the cave at, at Machpelah as a burial, burial place for Sarah, which takes place almost immediately after the binding of Isaac at Moriah. Uh, so tie in here to Abraham and uh, God's faithfulness through the years through Abraham and his covenant with him. So David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. Then David built an altar to the Lord there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And he called to the Lord and he answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offering. And fire from heaven here connects this with the occasions when this same thing occurred, both at the tabernacle in the desert, which we see in Leviticus 9, and then later at Solomon's dedication of the temple on this very site in 2 Chronicles 7. Next in verse 27, the Lord commanded the angel and he put his sword back in its sheath. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he offered sacrifice there. For the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offering, were in the high place at Gibeon at that time. But David could not go before, the Lord, before it to inquire of God, for he was terrified by the sword of the angel of the Lord. Now what we see in this last portion is that God is working it out so that the place where sacrifices are made is transitioning from the tabernacle to the site of the new temple. And it's in light of God's providence that we should read verse 30. It seems that as far as David knows, the proper place to, to, to offer sacrifice was still at the tabernacle, which was far away. But things are so urgent with the, with the plague advancing within Israel that God commands him to, to sacrifice at the altar here. And so the place is just transitioned from from uh, the tabernacle to the site of the new temple. And, and again, the chronicler is fulfilling or showing the fulfillment of God's covenant promise to Abraham that he would have a place, uh, that his place would be put where his name is made to dwell in Jerusalem. So because of the urgency of the circumstances, David is compelled to offer his sacrifice here at Moriah, which is now God's chosen place for such offerings. <coughs> And uh, that brings us just to a summary of what we've looked at today. First, the Davidic covenant um, and its nature being both conditional and unconditional and the way that's worked out. Um, just think on how that can be a helpful analogy to uh, the way we experience God's uh, salvation promises and covenant blessings. Secondly, uh, the importance of seeking faithfulness to God's word uh, even if it seems that it could make it less likely that God's purposes would be fulfilled. Um, and again, this ties in with the chronicler's overall emphasis of uh, the importance of submission to God's word in worship, which, which comprises everything that we do. And then thirdly, uh, all of the biblical threads uh, that are coming together in chapter 21 uh, should, should bring to mind or should indicate to us how greatly significant it is that God is placing his temple in Jerusalem. Um, he's, he's tying in the accounts of Adam, of Abraham, of Moses, and, and pointing to Christ. Uh, and, and, and the chronicler may not know that he's doing that, but it's, it's unmistakable the ways in which um, David being set up as a, uh, an insufficient Messiah figure points to Christ as the ultimate Messiah. Uh, so with that, we'll have a, a word of prayer um, Matt, did Brent cover all the announcements, or are we going to have announcements? Okay. All right. Let's pray.
Gracious Father, we praise you for your wisdom. Lord, we praise you for the rock-solid certainty that your covenant promises will be worked out according to your eternal decree. Father, we praise you for even lining up our study in such a way as to um, emphasize uh, what's being preached this morning in the, in the sermon, that um, we are to keep ourselves in the love of God according to the ways in which you instruct us, but Father, that uh, you are the one who is able to keep us, Lord, because all dominion and all authority have been given to Christ, and he lives to make perfect intercession for us. Um, our hope of being saved is without doubt. We praise you for this, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.